This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. We are bringing you an amazing episode this week. John, Luke, and Tex speak with author of the widely popular book titled Born to Run. Chris McDougall is no stranger to the big man struggle. Standing at 6 foot 4 inches and well over 200 pounds, he was not what one would consider a naturally adept long-distance runner. However, Chris's research on the subject led this lifelong athlete to ask the question... If others his size have been doing it out of necessity for thousands of years, why not him? Ultimately, these questions led to the publication of Born to Run and his latest book, Natural Born Heroes. This episode is a meaty conversation full of Chris's historical research and fascinating observations of cultural, social, and psychosocial connections to the act of athletic performance under stress. Chris McDougall is passionate about unraveling the whys of human performance. Hear his take on where we came from and where he thinks our culture is headed, and why he no longer watches organized sports on TV. His reasoning for this is searingly true and inspiring. This is episode 151. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? Uh, We are bringing another world-class episode to you. We are Strength and Conditioning's premier podcast. That is, It is the number one podcast available on the internet, Uh, (laughs) which is not, I mean, it's not a lie. Well, hey, uh, what did Adolf Hitler say? Just tell tell a big lie and keep telling it until people believe it. Great guy that Hitler. Get out of here. A couple public service announcements before we jump into another world-class guest, guys. I'm super excited for this show. But I want to give you a couple updates on our certs. we got a cert schedule update. I just added Philly and Seattle to the schedule uh, just yesterday. So if you're looking to get to a CrossFit football seminar, you got to go to CrossFitFootball.com and go to slash events and then check out our seminar schedule. We're going to be in Vegas uh, this weekend. Vegas. I'm going to bed at 9. I'm not not gambling. Uh, Then we got – we're going to be in Pittsburgh – Around Pittsburgh, we're going to be in Vernon Hills, Illinois, Seoul, Korea, Virginia Beach is almost sold out, OKC, Oklahoma City. Uh, then we're going to be in Brizzy, so Aussie boys, book a flight. No, we're not going to be in Perth this year, so if you're in Perth and you want to get to the seminar, you're going to have to fly across that little continent. And then we're going to be at the Rich Fronings Gym at uh, CrossFit Mayhem wow. as well. Royalty. So and then Seattle, Denver, Manchester, get on the schedule, guys. If you haven't been to this seminar, you got to go. Uh, it's not just about playing football. It's about how do you achieve pinnacle performance in your competitive arena. How do you like that? I like it. It's good. Throw that in the shower. Uh, you shower? No. <laughs> weekly. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then after that, guys, let's see. You know, we just put up a blog post, CrossFit Football, which is one of our Power Athlete programs was just nominated as a viable Superman workout option. Well, it was actually uh, Henry Cavill's – is it Carpels or Cavill? Cavill. Cavill's uh, 
number one training method for getting in shape for Superman was the CrossFit football program. Yeah, well, uh, approximately. Well, but, so that's what we're going with. Yeah. number one. <laughs> so if you want to check it out, go to thepowerathletehq.com. We just put up a blog on that. And also I did a uh, post on Talk to Me, Johnny, about magnesium deficiency. Oh, um, yeah. So for those of you guys who have some time, uh, fairly uh, super unknown just because very few people get micronutrient testing done. Well, so. it's all about macros. <laughs> That's the thing. If, if uh, it fits my macros, I know we can't. Know, we have an amazing like guest. We can't jump myself into it. in the face with this macro talk. But um, micronutrient deficiency definitely a real deal. Why are we having magnesium deficiency? I go through it. Uh, it's. I, I think it's pretty good. Uh, you might think it sucks, but um, nevertheless, go for it. Check it out, and then get some testing done. Yeah, because it, well, it comes down to you know we're all about performance, and we're going to talk about that today with our guest. And it's just like it's such a. It's something you can't see. We get stuck in the ruts. We stare at macros. We don't think about like the Roy G. Biv approach or micronutrient balance. And then you're like, why the fuck can't I perform? Why am I so tired? I know I'm a victim of it after Dr. Tom's test. Yep. And it's just like you got to get the variety and the micronutrients aligned if you want to even do anything with the macros. Well, it's almost impossible to you know make ATP and testosterone and a bunch of other good things if you're micronutrient deficient. So check it out. Did that one answer question. I got some other interesting stuff coming out, especially about how to eat a performance-based diet four five dollars a day <laughs> oh god I, this fucking guy i swear to god uh, uh sent me an email asking how could i eat a grass-fed organic uh meal on a hundred dollars a month he said 80 to 100 i'm gonna budget him out to like 150 to 150 because i can't do it but uh yeah so i've been racking my brain and putting way too much research into figuring this out yeah. just for some content but uh Enough of that, dude. Let's yeah, get on Let's, let's talk to our guest. We have Christopher McDougall, the uh, New York Times bestselling author of Born to Run, talking with us today. And it's like, uh, you know, you and I, Chris, personally uh, exist on the other end of the spectrum. I'm more about running when you're chased and probably no longer than 100 meters. Yeah. And uh, I know I'm probably engineered to go further than that, but uh, just – I'm not good at it. And I'm sure you're going to get into some of that today, but also uh, has a new book out just recently, Natural Born Heroes. So Chris, welcome to Power Athlete Radio, man. I'm super stoked to talk about this one. Uh, why don't you just go ahead and if somebody lives under a rock and doesn't know who you are, give them the, the 5, 10, 15, one hour spiel of who is Christopher McDougall. Yeah, you know, it's funny you should say that about not liking to run um, and not being good at it because uh, I was one of them and I became the other one. Uh, I never liked it. thought it sucked. I got hurt all the time. I was a big dude. I was pushing 250, 6'5". And, you know, likewise, I would get injured running and doctors would say, well, yeah, dude, you're, you're built like Shrek. Of course you get injured running. You know, you shouldn't be running. And it, it came as a surprise to me when I discovered that there were tribes of people that are of all shapes and sizes, all ages, and these dudes are, are busting out like multiple marathons in one day, you know, 100 miles, 150 miles at a time. So that became the genesis of Born to Run, which is looking at if one group can do something really well, shouldn't we all be able to, to do it? And if so, then what's, what's the trick? Now, with Natural Born Heroes, I try to take that to the next step, go beyond running into all forms of fitness and athleticism. And the model I used was World War II resistance fighters. Because, I mean, think about this right now. Like, if you have, like, a Red Dawn scenario, you know, let's just say an invading force comes into America right now. you got to grab shit from your house, head to the woods, and then survive on your own. Now, other than John, most of us would be dead in about 25 minutes, right? So the question is, how do these World War II resistance fighters, these were civilians who were suddenly put in a do-or-die combat situation. They had to live off the ground, you know, only eating food they could find and forage for. They were indulging in, sorry, participating in extreme athletic challenges because 
Sometimes these dudes would run 25 miles through the mountains, engage the Germans in hand-to-hand -hand combat, steal their weapons, and tote that shit 25 miles back. That's 50 miles in a night, hand-to-hand -hand combat, carrying stuff, living off of greens. And you do that for four years. So how do you survive? And to me, that question is really answered by this whole question of ancestral fitness. That for most of human existence, that was actually not an extreme situation. That was just like life in the Stone Age, man. You either fought hand-to-hand -hand and survived or you were extinct. And that became basically the genesis of National Born Heroes. And what this story is, in Born to Run, the story is about this crazy race between these American ultra runners and the Tatamata Indians. The story of Natural Born Heroes is a true tale of this band of misfits that decide, you know what, fuck running from the Germans. Let's make the Germans run from us. So they attacked one night and they captured the commanding German general and they took him on the run. And 80,000 German soldiers chased these guys for a month and a half and could not capture them. That's the story about Natural Born Heroes. Wow. Uh, are you a big uh, Art Devaney fan? A big what? A big what fan? Uh, uh, Art Devaney. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. We know it's it's funny because once you start digging into these worlds, they all overlap. You know, you yeah. got Art Devaney, you got Georgia Bear, you've got yeah. Move Nat, you got uh, Parkour, and uh, you know, I feel like it all can be boiled down to like nine words. You know, natural movement, paleo diet, be an all around athlete. So, yeah, I, mean, uh, I, geez, I, I met Erwan LaCour, geez, years yeah. ago. He did his very first seminar at my gym, and I helped RA it for him and, uh, you know, help him make some improvements. And, um, you know, I met Art Devaney and, and these guys, and, you know, Rob Wolf and I are super old friends. And yeah. uh, just really that idea of, you know, being able to, you know, adapt your fitness into something, you know, not just, you know, within the confines of a, you know, square wall within a gym that, you know, looks like, you know, perfectly you know, symmetrical weights that are able to be lifted and different things. And I think, you know, things have gotten so confused in terms of who we are as people that, you know, some of the, the talking that you made about, um, you know, natural born heroes about, uh, you know, in creative community and what do these things look like? And it's pretty, it's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked. I, I couldn't agree more with all this stuff. And, and you're right. It kind of does overlap in a lot of ways. And, uh, and John, to me, that's a sign that when I come across as overlaps, that's a sign to me that I'm on the money. Um, it was kind of similar with Born to Run because my starting point was basically zero. I wasn't a runner. I wasn't interested in running. I heard about this tribe and I thought, okay, I'll go down there. I'll do a quick article about this tribe for Runner's World magazine and then I'm done. But when I'm down there, I meet this guy, Bayo Blanco, Micah True. The guy was in his 50s. He was my same height, my same shoe size. And he had been an injured ex-runner the same age I was when he originally went down there. And so I'm, I'm sort of looking at my mirror image in front of me, but 10 years in the future. And this guy said, look, man, anybody can learn how to do this. So when you start to find that various people are approaching the same truth from different directions. So with Born to Run, I got guys like Barefoot Ted. I got you know, Professor Lieberman at Harvard. I got Micah True, the, uh, the wacky misfit guy. You have all these different people who are basically saying the same thing, and they all think that they are discovering their own truth. And you realize, no, they've all discovered the same truth. They're just expressing it in different words. And with natural movement, it's exactly that. You know, Everyone tries to carve out their own little piece of ownership, but I really feel like they're saying the same thing just in different languages. So, Chris, at, at 6'5", 250, what, I mean, what was your background growing up? Did you have an athletic background, or you know, what, was, what was your work before you, you jumped into this type of stuff? So I, I came out of Philly, John. That's where I grew up. I grew up in Upper Darby in South Philadelphia. So I was all hoofs all the time. And I played for St. Joe's Prep in the Catholic League, which is yeah. you know, against Overbrook Roman Catholic. These super tough yeah. competitive basketball. So I was all uh, hoofs all the time. My ex-teammate, uh, John Runyon, his, his boy just graduated from St. Joe's and then went oh, right. to Michigan. 
Oh, no shit. No yeah. shit. And, and so, yeah, I remember Runyon telling me that his, his son was going to St. Joe's, and that's kind of the, uh, you know, if you got some dough and you're living in the Philly area and you you know, fairly decent athlete, that's where you go. It was one of these weird crossover schools because it's still in the heart of Center City. It's up to 17th and Gerard, which is kind of no man's yeah. land. Sure. Well, I used to live in 23rd and Locust. All right, right on, man. I was yeah. not, not too far away, too. Yeah. So it's got that downtown credibility, but at the same time, they're like, they got the Jesuits trying to you know, hone real, real academics and, and uh, students. So um, I played basketball all the time, and then I had a weird thing happen. My senior year in high school, you know all the rowers they have along the Schuylkill River now mm-hmm. in Philly, right, John? Yeah. So oh, yeah. those were not there. You know, back when I was in high school, none of that existed. Uh, so so like none of the boathouses, nothing? The boathouses were there, but they're remnants from the 1800s. But all the rowing programs had vanished. There were no wow. high school rowing at all. One guy who had rowed in college wanted to start a program. He walks into our high school gym my senior year, and uh, every guy was six foot tall. He recruited for the, this new rowing team. I never heard of rowing. What the fuck? I don't care. But basketball is over. I had nothing to do. So uh, I think I'll try out for this rowing thing. Because there's no competition, we ended up winning the national championship, which got me into some colleges, which I never would have had a chance at before. Because, you know, the Ivy Leagues love rowers. So I ended up, instead of trying to get a scholarship or sign it as like a six-man on basketball, next thing you know, I'm being recruited by Ivy League schools. So I row all through college. And then Where'd you I go to school? I went to Harvard. I was a, I was a Harvard, Harvard heavyweight rower for four years. Nice. Never would have happened without uh, putting an oar in my hand. Anyway, here's the situation. So I graduated college, and like everybody else, you had that, that downtime where like you're not playing an organized sport anymore. You can eat like a fucking savage because now you've got money in your pocket, you got a job, you got no curve, you do whatever you want. So you're eating like an athlete, but you're not performing like an athlete. And so I just started getting heavier and heavier. I went from 190 to 250. And uh, that was it. I, I kept trying to find a way to get into shape. I wasn't rowing anymore. I couldn't really play hoops anymore. Uh, I tried to run. I kept getting injured. And that was basically the starting point for me with, with Born to Run. It's like, what's the next step? Like, how can I find some way to work out where I uh, won't get hurt? Uh, ironically, in a similar situation, um, I'm playing high school football. And, you know, I've got something like 100 scholarship offers coming out of high school. And uh, one of the schools called me up was Harvard. And they were okay. like, hey, we're really glad to recruit you in this. And I remember uh, uh, them talking. I'm like, well, you can't give scholarships. Like, what does it look like? And he's like, well, we can do financial aid. And um, uh, he's like, you, would your parents qualify? I'm like, oh, my dad's a lawyer. I don't know if you'd qualify. And I remember I talked to my dad. And I was like, dad, I got the opportunity to go to Harvard. And he's like, Berkeley's pretty good school. And they're going to give you a full ride. <laughs> so I ended up going to Berkeley. <laughs> wow. But I think, like, man, that would have been, you know, a pretty cool opportunity to be able to go to Harvard or Yale, one of those East Coast schools. But I got to go to Berkeley, which was pretty so doesn't life suck when your backup is Berkeley, you know? <laughs> well, well, life's life pretty good, man. The valedictorian in my high school didn't get into Berkeley, so they were uh, – she was yeah, yeah. a little angry. And I was like, well, you should put more time playing football. So, <laughs> that's right. You know, but, yeah, I mean, that was – yeah. But, uh, you know, having – geez, that, that's so ironic. I did. I lived right on Locust, and then I lived in Manning. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I used to take, uh, you know, Kelly Drive to work every day. And, yeah. uh, you know, and used to see, uh, you know, all the guys on, you know, on the boats and the boathouses and that whole deal. And, yeah, that, no, that's – it's always cool when people are comfort or live in the same place and have the same kind of experiences. You know, Philly like, is really, I think, underrated as a great place to live. The fact that you can live in Manignon, like you're in like a little village right on the river. You can actually ride a bike right down Kelly Drive in the center city in 25 minutes. It's, uh, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, it was great, dude. That's, um, yeah. no, those are some of the greatest times. I mean, best times of my life. I mean, I was playing for the Eagles at the time, and we were winning left and right. I mean, it went to yeah. championship games. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, wherever we went, our money was no good. You know, you, I never paid for a meal. And then I go to Kansas City, and they uh, first day I'm there, like, sitting down with a bunch of guys, they slid us a bill. And I was like, you guys actually pay for food here? 
<laughs> although, John, although, John, I bet you were loved everywhere in Philadelphia except inside the actual stadium. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was fortunate enough to actually play in Old Veteran Stadium. So that's where I, you know, uh, we started and I got to play at the link uh, later in my career. So I actually got to see the 700, you know, uh, uh, you know, 700 crew and, and that play and that, you know, which was really Philly football. So right, right. such a part of South Philly at the time. I mean, you know, people don't really understand like, uh, you know, there were, you know, iron workers and, you know, unions that actually had sections and they were up there in their, you know, uh, you know, in their, their card. Article. Oh yeah. They're pissed uh, off. Before, they're pissed off before the game even starts. Well, it's because they started drinking so early. I mean, you know, <laughs> Saturday, it's 8 a.m. They're cracking beers. And by the time yeah, yeah, yeah. They, won, they were ready to rock. Cakes and yeah. yeah. It's a good deal. Yeah. So tell us about, uh, like, dive into, like, uh, Natural Born Heroes. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm super familiar with Born to Run. I mean, uh, it's, uh, you know, for um, – I'm always interested in things that completely augment, you know, people's minds. And really, Born to Run was – uh, you know, such a major part, especially, you know, with the, like the barefoot movement. I mean, I, I actually credit Born to Run for seeing all the stupid uh, five finger shoes where I just want to stomp on people's No, I got the original pair still. I'll wear them to my office tomorrow. They are the worst. Hang on a second though, John. Here, so here's the deal. Yes, they, they look weird, but we've also got a question ourselves too. Why do we find the shape of the human foot to look weird? Because a five finger just traces the shape of the human foot. There's something about it, man. We are just so conditioned to think of narrow shoes with laces being normal that we forget that five toes is is, is the way we're supposed I'd to. I'd much be. rather see somebody in a, in a set of barefoot Teds. And actually, I yeah, had yeah. a pair of barefoot Teds, and we used to train and run and do a lot of stuff in them. But yeah, for yeah. some reason, the five-finger shoes were the weirdest thing to me. And, uh, yeah, yeah, man. They're a, little, they're a little fancy pants. It's true. Well, I think what made it weird for – you is when they first came out was like right when we were hitting it like or right when you guys were jumping into the crossfit market so you have all these weird crossfitters at the time like there was no there was no uni reebok uniform yet yeah. so there's all these weird people who are in shape and out of shape and announce their presence by wearing the fucking ninja shoes and they have the five finger shoes yeah. and you're like oh this guy's a crossfitter obviously yeah. and that, i was that guy like i'm, I'm not kidding no you. shame i would never wear them but, but i had two sets of barefoot teds and yeah. we wear those suckers and train them, squat them, did everything in those. And I'd rather see somebody in those or actually training barefoot than wearing yeah. the shoes. Yeah. Or something so, bad, too. It's kind of like the guys that say at the bike shop, you know, when a guy shows up in a brand new $5,000 bike, they say more, more money than miles, you know. People would rather yeah. shop and actually learn something. Uh -huh. So I, I get your point with the five fingers. I, I heard it all the time, man. I got tens of thousands of emails from people. And I could, I could quote them from memory. They would say, okay, so now I bought the shoes. Now what do I do? And I said, what the fuck ever say buy shoes? You know, all <laughs> well, the book is don't buy shoes. But they thought I got the five fingers, problem solved. So the, uh, the, the thing which was interesting for me is I've always hated uh, thick sole shoes. So like my entire life, and, and uh, there was an old um, uh, podiatrist that we had at the Eagles, and I cannot remember his name. Uh, his first name was Lee, and uh, he's like this old Jewish podiatrist dude. And he told me well, my rookie year when I came in the NFL, he's like, oh, you got pretty high arches. And he goes, that's usually people like, you know, are a little nervous about that. And I'm like, why? He's like, well, there's more foot injuries, but he goes, it's actually a good thing because the arch is effectively a spring. So he goes, yeah. people with high arches should be faster. He goes, the problem is, is if you're lazy with your knees and we went through all this positional stuff about collapsed arches. And he goes, if you want to have healthy feet, he goes, and he showed me how to stretch out my feet. He goes, don't wear shoes. He goes, just don't wear them. He goes, the only time I want you to wear shoes is, is when we're on the field, you're wearing a football deal. He, and I was like, well, what should I wear? And he, and he goes, I, I always wore bands growing up in California. And he's yeah. like, perfect. He goes, the least amount of sole you can wear 
He goes, if you can get, uh, he goes, I don't like flip-flops because people quench their toes and they shorten their stride. So he's like, find a way to latch them on the back or just walk around barefoot. He's like, just yeah. take your shoes off, don't do it. And uh, um, so I either wore Vans or uh, flip-flops or barefoot or, and other than football, and I've never had any foot problems. Yeah. And I buy arches, and um, it's amazing uh, the amount of people that I've met, you know, like all these guys with orthotics and all this different stuff I used to run into. And I was like, dude, stop wearing those fucking shoes. I was yeah. like, weak shoes. That's why they got all this stuff. I actually switched to Vans about three years ago, and I've decreased the size in half. So my arch just, I think, just started to go up where it should be. And now I fit very snug and comfortable in Vans. you flat-footed to begin with? Uh, no, but then four years of just running miles every day for college lacrosse, but then getting out of it and just running fast and lifting heavy. Because, you know, that's what I've heard. I've heard people tell me that they uh, were flat-footed and started going barefoot, and they had the same transformation. Their arches came up, their shoe size decreased, but they thought they were sort of doomed to be flat-foot their entire lives, and all they had to do was actually train the foot, and yep. they were themselves. Well, the big thing we saw, too, is uh, if you look at somebody's knee, if all of a sudden the knee collapses in, the foot will break, and then the arms will collapse. And we found just basically just doing with some basic barbell work, just teaching people actually to – you know, squat a little bit wider, drive the knees out, and you could even put your hands and get somebody to push their knees out. And as they go push out instantly, if they're barefoot, you'll see them make arches. So I think yeah. what it is is uh, people, one, they don't really understand, you know, basic movement patterns. Like, hey, if you're going to squat, you don't want your knees to completely collapse in on each other because not only is, you know, that dy dynamic valgus knee this way, but also it collapses the ankles. And then people just constantly wearing shoes. And what do they do to strengthen their feet? I mean, I um, years ago, uh, I got a real bad turf toe and uh, part of the rehab um, I ended up having a mild Liz Frank that wasn't a total tear, but uh, they had me do all this foot rehab about like picking up marbles with the toes and being able to spread the feet and grab and, you know, like sit down and actually do things like this. And honestly, it, it was some of the most valuable stuff in terms of foot health and just being able to like stretch them out and pull them and work on them. And um, it's, you know, paid dividends for, I have really haven't had any foot problems where I meet people that have horrendous stuff and they're like, Ooh, Agenda for that. Yeah, it's funny, John, because uh, you mentioned Barefoot Ted, and uh, he's a dude that I like to sort of tease and make fun of a lot. But every five or six years or so, I realized that something he told me in the past, I'm now quoting and living by all the time. So I'm, I'm <laughs> mocking him when he, when he says, I think he's a goofball. But one of the things he talked about was he goes, anytime you have some kind of foot pain, your first remedy should be find an icy cold mountain creek and go walk on some cold wet stones i'm like yeah 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 sure dude. and i find something like well my feet hurt i just go into the creek and just walk across the rocks but it's basically it's like a natural reiki massage those you know, stones dig into your plantar fascia they, they rub it out for you the cold i guess you know takes blood away from the the area and all i know is i walk out of the creek and suddenly something that seemed chronic has now just uh, disappeared um but i guess you know it's, as we're talking, I'm sort of thinking about my starting point. All this was, you know, rather than coming from a performance model where I'm trying to see what I can do to my body in order to make myself a better performance athlete, I'm trying to go the opposite direction and see what have people already done in the past where they weren't trying to do it, where they were forced by necessity to perform in a certain way. So the Tarahumata, they live at the bottom of the canyon, and they either get up and down that canyon 50, 60 miles at a time, or, or they're dead. Um, they either find logs and bring them back for their shelter or they, they, or they're out in the open air. 
And uh, same with the, with the resistance fighters. You know, either they figured out a way to fuel their bodies and stay strong in extreme conditions, or the Germans wiped them out. And so what I want to find is, are there lessons we can extract from what they do, which we can then apply to our own normal modern lives? And, and I, I see the connection to be really strong and, and really direct all the time. Give you a case in point to Tarumata. You know, I, I say in Born to Run, it's like, Tarumata are not great runners. They're great athletes because they're not just running a 5K as fast as they can once a month. They're out there every single day in their bare feet, lifting logs, carrying goats on their shoulders, foraging for food. They're constantly down in a full squat, finally, full, fully extending, twisting, rotating, carrying, digging. They're using all parts of their body in every conceivable direction every single day. Chris, you said something interesting early on is, you know, that people can tap into this ability based off of necessity, right? And it's like, you know, that's one of the hard things to instill in just what we refer to general pop, well, the people who are trying to reverse engineer these abilities. Well, there, there's a um, interesting quote, and I can't remember who said it, but uh, people never realize how strong they are until they're forced to be strong. Yeah. And it's like, you know, uh, you know, and I always have had this idea that, uh, you know, great men are not just great men. They just happen to be individuals that are put into, you know, difficult situations that force them to, you know, make a, a good or bad decision. And then history really judges your decision. And that's what kind of deems you a great man or a great man, you know, and it's, uh, uh, you know, like who's to say, you know, why is it that all these different points in time did we just happen to have the right person at the right time, which I don't think necessarily is the case at all. But um, just, you know, like in terms of like what, what you're saying about these guys, I mean, they were forced to, you know, into this model. They're at the bottom of the canyon. They got to get to the top. They got to do all these things. And so they really have no choice. I mean, you know, a wise man once told us a man with a choice. It's a man with a problem. problem. You know, you give people no choice and you force them to do these things. Um, you know, like these fighters. I mean, and uh, as you're talking about natural heroes, the only thing I'm thinking of, what did they eat? Well, here's a couple of things on that point. Um, the first thing is, you're exactly right. We have these bodies which are honed during millions of years to respond really well in the case of emergency. We can store energy really well. We can vent heat well. We can climb. We can swim. We are probably the most adaptable species on the planet for physical challenges, because we can do a little bit of everything. We don't do anything great. You know, gorillas are stronger, cheetahs are faster. We can't kick any other species' ass in the individual competition, but when it comes to like the decathlon of emergencies, we're the best. But here's the problem. So for two million years, we were perfecting this body to respond in the case of emergency, and then we removed all the emergencies. Like right now, there's never an emergency in your life. If yeah. there's an emergency, what do you do? You dial the phone, have somebody else take care of it, right? Like. Someone stole my car. Like, I'm not chasing the fucker. I'm going to call the cops to do it. <laughs> call somebody else. John, you actually played sports on behalf of other people. You're like, I wasn't out playing pro football. I, I was an entertainer. Play. I played, paid you to play. I just sat in 700 level and yelled at you. <laughs> well, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the thing I, I used to laugh at is, uh, uh, you know, when guys would always talk about, you know, like uh, there's this really weird thing in the NFL where – the NFL has done a great job through marketing media and billions of dollars spent in leading the NFL football experience into the fabric of America and making people believe that what's happening out, uh, like on the field actually fucking matters. Yeah. It's a game. And I used to tell people, I'm like, we're not curing cancer. Like yeah. we're out here to entertain a bunch of people that are getting shit faced in the stands 
as a uh, like pure entertainment. It's like the gladiators out there fighting for the entertainment of the people. And like my, you know, uh, Berkeley, I was a, a rhetoric classics major in college and I used to joke with people. I'm like, you know what the gladiators said before they went out there? It was Ave Cesar, Mortuary, Te Salutant, which is those of us about to die, salute you. I mean, they were there to fucking entertain. And like yeah. guys would like treat this stuff or people like case in point uh, after one of the practices, they brought this poor guy up that had like both arms broken and they had like webs holding this guy up. And he's like in this big like contraption and this dude comes out and I'm like, Holy shit, this guy's like in like a, uh, like an R2D2 almost. And the guy comes out, he was at our game in um, uh, up in the Meadowlands against the giants. And as he was walking down the stairs with his like four year old kid, some dude karate kicks him in the back down the stairs and the guy tumbles down three stories. She, Shatters both arms completely, hands million pieces. The doctors go back and surgically attach it and have all these like different pins. This poor guy, they bring him out, and like everybody's like, you know, thank you for being so brave in this. And I'm like, what the fuck is the disconnect that like you're a fan that buys a ticket, you go to the game, this guy happens to be with his kid, he's from Philly, and somebody kicks him down the stairs to try to kill him because he's wearing a different jersey, uh, like. Like, I, I, I just always, like, fan is a fanatic. I mean, that's what it's short for. So I never really understood the model of it. I mean, I played football for one reason, is that I liked to, uh, I liked the competition of me fighting against another person. You know, I got to know exactly how good or bad I was 70 times every Sunday in front of millions of people. And it was all about the one-on-one fist fight. And uh, that's all I liked. I, I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about the fame. I, didn't care. I mean, I, the money was nice. Uh, but I didn't give a shit about the fame. I didn't care if people knew who I was. I didn't want to hear on the back. I never once heard the crowd roar in all the years I played. And I didn't play for any of the accolades or any of the, uh, you know, what you would say as professional athletes so that people know who I am, whatever. That didn't matter to me. It, it only mattered about my performance that second against that individual, whether or not I won or lost. So when the game. That's my problem, honestly, with professional sports, with, with all spectator sports is because we have, you know, subcontracted, we've offloaded all of our athleticism into paid professionals, and we've become an, a nation of watchers. Funny thing was, I stopped watching all spectator sports about 15 years ago, and it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. First of all, I got my Sunday back to myself. Sure. <laughs> I'm not engaged in conversations where I'm judging other people that I don't know based on something I saw for 15 minutes on television. And secondly, my my psyche is focused on what I do and not, not what somebody else does. I'm not measuring, my, measuring myself against Steph Curry or something like that. I'm out in the backyard playing my own basketball. So I, I got a real gripe with, with performance sports, you know, or spectator sports. But, you know, the other thing, too, we, we're looking at that question about performance. So here we are in, the, in this model where we have hired you to be our proxy for us, and I feel confident knowing that if there's an emergency, John's out there, he can kick someone's ass for me. But I've taken away my own responsibility for eating properly and being athletic and responding in a crisis. Now, the ancient Greeks, that's really the foundation of natural-born heroes. They believed, you know, heroes were not an accident. It's like you don't hope that the right man comes along in the right circumstances. You actually train everybody so that the right man is always there because everybody is trained. And they believe that being a hero is an art. And it's based on basically three things. It's on your brain, it's on your belly, and it's on your muscles. You have to know how to respond. You got to be physically capable of responding, and you got to fuel that machine so that machine is ready. So that's all basically is eating right, being skilled, and being strong. But it's not again what we we think of it as being. It's not like Arnold in Pump and Iron. You know, we have these massive over five dudes. You look at any of the Greek statues. You look at uh, of the Greek heroes. These were all you know 
well-muscled guys, pretty lean, but not these fabulously like veined and ripped specimens. And the idea was, if you're that big bulky dude, you were the first one to go down because you're an obvious target and you weren't mobile. Sure. That's really what Florida Here is all about. It's training every individual to be able to respond in a pinch, in a crisis. It was uh, like the story of Achilles uh, fighting, you know, the the giant, and he takes him down with that one, like swift move. And uh, yeah, I, I was a rhetoric major in a big classics deal, and one of my professors who we had on was uh, uh, Stephen Miller. Yeah, Stephen Miller, uh, the foremost expert in the world on uh, ancient athletics, and he actually excavated one of the sites at Nemea, and uh, he was one of my professors and advisors, and um, just pretty fascinating dude. But a big part of that deal, and what I've always subscribed to, is that uh, you know what I call the Renaissance man, where you should be able to read, you should be able to write, you should be able to argue, you should be able to, uh, you know, uh, an athlete, a poet, a cook. I mean, like this one dimensional thing. And I think what's, what's really difficult to wrap my head around for a lot of people. And like you're, you're saying it is that people are so one dimensional. Well, that's not what I do. And I'm like, you should be able to do everything. It's like for the same, for the same deal where, uh, yeah, we should be able to go do all these things. And then, you know, how many people I met that don't know how to cook a steak. And I'm like, dude, if you don't know how to cook out a piece of meat and you don't know how to cook it, I'm like, as a guy, like, I really don't have any, uh, anything in common with you. I mean, it's like you should be able to change your own oil and work on your car. And like, we basically, like you said, you people have farmed everything out to experts that there's no more personal responsibility. Like you said, like my car breaks, what do I do? I, I don't know how to change a tire. I don't know how to change oil. Does my car even need oil? And like for me, that ability to be capable and also, you know, to be, like you said, like a complete person, like the Greeks, I mean, they were all, you know, they were warriors, they were philosophers, they were, you know, thinkers and writers and just a little bit, you know, dancers and everything. So, I mean, that was, has always appealed to me greatly. And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, that's, that's awesome. I, I always thought that I was a little unique in that way. So I'm glad to know that there's another person that hates spectator sports because I personally do because I don't like to watch people do anything. All right, man. You know, like if we're playing, like that, that's why uh, since I retired, watching football was so difficult. Um, and my wife is, you know, a football fan, and she's like, why don't you want to watch? And I'm like, you know, um, I don't like to watch people do things. And more importantly, I don't like to watch people do things badly. And the level which I watch people play is not what I would, you know. I mean, I, I played at a high level, and when I couldn't play at a high level, I knew it was time to leave, and I retired. And let me ask you guys a question. Of the four of us here right now, how many would consider themselves – attention deficient you know what, what, how about you tax do you feel like you're kind of attention deficient kind of antsy hyperactive absolutely how, how about you luke yeah I, I guess i mean i need more than one thing going on at once to be entertained <laughs> uh, how about you john yeah for 100 percent. i mean i uh like you know my add is gets kicking but what i do is i actually task myself with enough things that uh i'm never like at a loss for anything like um, and it doesn't you know like there's always something to work on and my wife always jokes that she's like uh like when we go out to dinner um I got I have three kids now but my I have twin daughters so what you know and you, you have kids obviously when your girl you know kids were four years old what do you do when you go to dinner you pull out the, the, the coloring books and the crayons or you pull out something for the kids to entertain my wife hands my daughters their coloring books and then she hands me my pencils and my coloring books <laughs> and I sit there and I color and it's because she knows that, like, if I if she doesn't bring them, then I'll steal the kids. And yeah, so I'm always doing something and moving. I mean, there's never a downtime. The reason I bring it up is because I, I have this theory that we have demonized this this hyperactivity. You know, we we've demonized this natural energy in our bodies, the sense of be up out of your chair and moving. Instead, we tell everyone to sit down, shut up, stay in your cubicle, stay at your desk, stay in your office. 
And I think that's another thing that's taking us in the wrong direction, you know? And I'm just kind of looking at the three of you guys here on my screen, and we're all kind of moving and fidgeting around. I realize that we kind of can't wait for this to get over with because we all want to get outside and do something. And, and to me, that's a real sign of actually good ancestral health is that if you got in trouble in school, you're probably on the right fitness track. <laughs> uh, you know, the, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it's so fascinating, like, uh, being this, you know, like kind of uh, played at this level, especially for me, like uh, in terms of sports, and then all of a sudden you retire, and then you're kind of in a situation, you're like, now what do you do? Yeah. And for us, yeah. it was, um, you know, a big part of what we do as, a, as a, you know, really the company is, is education about how to educate individuals to effectively performance train athletes. And that can start as young as whatever, you know, how, uh, you know, as young as it is. But really, my passion for a lot of things, once I had kids, was uh, how do you develop athletes especially from a young age and, you know, and my deal and actually talking to numerous people and I'll count you as one of them uh, is opportunity. The world's best athletes and the world's greatest heroes and whatever you want to say, it, they were provided the opportunity. And, you know, I, I work as a, a contractor for Naval Special Warfare and go to teach performance for SEAL teams. Um, and, you know, one of the, I went to one of the sniper deals, one of the long range shooting and they, you know, referenced a guy, Carlos Hathcock who is, you know, known as, you know, probably the deadliest sniper in U.S. history up in, you know, before Chris Kyle. And he's got a pretty amazing book. But they talk about, you know, how did he develop into being the shooter? And, you know, he was a poor kid and his dad would hand him a rifle and, you know, 122 round and he had to come home with, uh, you know, at least one squirrel. And he started coming home with two and three with one bullet and he just developed his skill. 18 years old goes to the military and the story goes that he was set up on the range to shoot the first day and he shoots and, the, you know, they shoot again. And, uh, you know, his DI comes over and yells at him for, for missing off targets. And he's looking, he's like, I only see one hole. And he's like, I'm putting him through the same. And the guy's like, bullshit, nobody can do that. So they put him on a fresh target, he shoots it, they put him a fresh target, and it keeps going through the same, same hole. At which point they were like, you go that way. And then that's you know, the stories about him in Vietnam. But really, when you look at the world's best, you know, performers and athletes and what people are able to do, it really comes down to the opportunities that have been presented to them at a really young age. And, you know, uh, now does, does, and just going back to necessity, cause I, you know, I complain about the lack of necessity all the time with like, yeah. okay, we have no real problems. Like you said, there's no emergencies, Chris. So how, where and how does necessity play into bridging the gap between opportunity and ability? Ah, oh, well, I mean, you think about, um, you know, that Carlos Hathcock tale. I mean, here's the deal where they had to eat. Mm -hmm. They had a rifle. They only were poor. They had one bullet. And they just happened to, you know, hey, you, you got to go. Right. So, so he had necessity to hunt and the opportunity to have the rifle. So I think what happens is, is there's necessity, but people don't provide the opportunity to fit or to meet the need of necessity. Because honestly, I think people are either lazy or they're just – Waiting for somebody to hang. Know. Yeah, well, well, think about this. And, and uh, I wrote a blog post. I, I made a comment once. Nobody's coming to save you, you know? Let me, let me, let me throw something at you. Um, because, yeah, you know, we like to beat up on people as being lazy. Like, hey, they don't want to go to the gym. They don't want to run. But the fact of the matter is, you know, again, during evolution, we adapted ourselves to conserve energy at all costs. Like, there's a, there's a voice inside you that says, stay on the sofa. That's the best thing. And that voice is actually right. Because, again, for 2 million years, you wouldn't go out and run 15 miles in the morning for fun because what if 10 minutes later you're being attacked and now you got to run and you know, you're exhausted. You've burned up all your glycogen stores recreationally and now there's a real emergency. So evolution has trained us to be couch potatoes. So it really, 
it's not people's fault. You know, people are listening to the voice of evolution, which says conserve energy at all costs in case of emergency. We're the ones that made technology so unbelievably efficient. We removed all the emergencies. So then how do you solve that problem? The ancient, Greek, the ancient Greeks actually had an answer. And that, that answer is the word compassion. It's at the center of every major religion, this idea of like do unto others to help other people out. And the Greeks believed, you know, that, you know, uh, to be a hero was a three-legged stool. And one of those legs had to do with compassion, the sense of you are tied in with everybody else. And that might end up being the answer to the question that we're looking for. You know, George Hebert, the guy who really was sort of the forerunner of parkour and CrossFit, George Hebert had a simple phrase. He said, be fit to be useful. Now, he didn't say be fit to be heroic, be fit to be strong, be useful. And useful is in many different ways, too, to be able to lift, carry, crawl, jump, throw, catch, all those different things. So maybe what we really need to get people in shape are those two words, be useful. So if I'm at the gym and I'm, and I'm, and I'm doing bicep curls, I can ask myself, am I really being useful? Will I ever in my life have to do the motion of a bicep curl? Maybe something else, you know, maybe some more body weight training, something more based on natural movement. So if we get people excited about the idea of not being the fastest marathoner, but being the most useful athlete, the most all-around athlete, maybe that'll start to solve that problem for us. Well, I mean, isn't this really, I mean, now, now we're talking about kind of a, a social problem in that there's yeah. this, there's this belief that being not the best is I think what people fear the most that like, I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm not going to do this stuff because whatever I do, I'm not going to look the way that I want to look. So I'm just not going to start. I'm not going to go out and play basketball because I'm no good at it. Instead of just being like, let's go shoot some hoops. And like, I, I think there's this, this, um, you know, feeling and, and honestly, I, I think it's been perpetuated within the last, you know, seven, eight years with social media because, you know, and, and you, you remember the days where if uh, you wanted to know something uh, or there was, you know, and I, I remember when I was young and wanted to lift weights, I actually had to call somebody on the phone or go visit them and, you know, Hey, how do I train for football? Well, this is what we're going to do. There was no internet. There was no forums. If I wanted a book, I had to go to the library. So there was this kind of, uh, intrinsic motivation to learn and to do things now things are and I, I really believe it are just so easy to access you know like let's look you know hey uh, uh you know uh, chris is on power athlete radio i can go watch his ted talk you know do i have to listen to this and it's uh it's 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 all my you know and i, I don't know if it's it, it, maybe it's the efficiency or whatever but i i really run into a lot of people that are afraid to start or really afraid to, to push themselves or don't really necessarily know how to go because there is this feeling that, well, everybody's already so much better than me. And I tell people all the time, I'm like, what you see on the internet, what people are probably, or, uh, you know, pushing out is probably bullshit and a lie. Don't assume, I mean, don't believe any of it. The false reality. Yeah. It, it, you know, people creating a false reality, whether it's like I get up there and here I am flexing, but little do you know that I Photoshopped the shit out of myself or, you know, yeah. those weights are fake. I mean, there, there's people are unscrupulous and will always do, you know, shady stuff. But the problem is, is that, you know, people, I think, don't really necessarily know where to start. So, I mean, a big part of our stuff was, you know, how do you, you know, like if I believe everybody has the ability to be an athlete and we can offer a training style that increases your athleticism. Now, are you going to be a Bo Jackson? Probably not. But can you be a better version of you are today? And really, that's what we look at in terms of the performance model. I'm not looking to measure your performance against others. I'm looking you to measure your performance today against what it was six, eight months ago, a year. Are you a better mover? Uh, are you more flexible? Are you stronger? Are you able to jump higher, run faster? What, and then more importantly, whatever 
model we are trying to test it for. Like, for example, if, uh, you know, you wanted to do, you know, let's say it's just go shoot hoops and jump higher and get rebounds better. Well, is the, is the training able to allow you to live your life to a better degree than what it was before? You guys must run into that all the time. I mean, do you constantly hear people saying, well, I'm not that good or I'm not that strong. Are they sort of apologizing for themselves before they start? And, and, you know, and my, my thing is, is um, first day I went to go lift weights and I tell people uh, um, first day I went to show up, lift weights. I was uh, 14 years old, never lifted weights. Um, and there, all these kids were, you know, I, I was a late bloomer. So I was, you know, all looking over these other guys are like way bigger than me. I mean, I was kind of tall, six foot, 165 pounds, which doesn't sound small, but at the time I was like a bean pole. I go over and I barely bench 115 pounds. So I got to go over and do like sets of five, whatever with like 85 pounds. And I was so embarrassed because all the other guys were able to lift with 45s, which was at least 135 that I had to go lift on my own bench. And like, that was like humiliating to me that I wasn't as good as those guys. So then I was like, well, I got to figure this out. I got to like either find people that, that know how to do this. Or there has to be a reason why I'm not strong. And then it became like this deal when I ended up going to training and then, you know, obviously become you know strong and go do my job. Uh, but really it was this kind of intrinsic uh, little bit of shame where, you know, why aren't I as good? You know, how can I be better? You know, and uh, that what really led me down that path but for me, I didn't shy from it. It was the, you know, really the, the catalyst to get me to move. If I had been just good at everything and actually strong, I probably wouldn't have developed the amount of work on the back end that all of a sudden I go to college. I'm 18 years old. I'm 6'4", like 245, 250 pounds, which is pretty big, but didn't own a razor. All of a sudden I start to mature. And next thing I grow two inches in college and, you know, and, um, you know, squat 600 before I'm 20, bench 500 before I'm 22 and you know, run a 4'9 and do all these things. Be able to go play as an NFL player, and I always think that if I had just been like, "Well, I won't be good. I won't do it." And like I took that shit personally, and I was like, "You know what? The only person that can fix this is me." If I put systematically, just go move the dirt. If I just keep going every single day, eventually I will. I will win and do this. And uh, what's hard for me, and I tell people that story, is like, like being here today isn't a bad thing. This is actually a great thing. The problem is, is two years from now, if you're still in the same place you are today, then we got a problem. You know, you have to be able to move forward. And here's, here's maybe the thing too. Um, you know, you're talking earlier about uh, snipers, right? And about shooting. So that's one of the things I actually looked at in Natural Born Heroes because I was reading these amazing stories, true stories. There's one in particular where a British special agent witnessed this. He was in a village. Uh, it was full of resistance fighters. They heard that the Germans were coming, so all the men took off, and they hid up in the woods. The Germans come into town, and all they find are women. So they know that there's some guys around there, and they're hiding somewhere. So they line the women up against the wall of the church. They put a machine gun in front of them. The commander puts his hand in the air with five fingers. And he's like, I'm going to count to five. You either tell us where the men are, or you're all dead. So this guy starts counting down, you know, five, four, three. When he got to two, his head exploded. One of the shepherds had been a quarter mile away. He heard about this happening. He grabs his gun. He comes racing back through the woods, drops to a knee up on a hillside, and from 100 yards away, he blows this guy's head off with an old shepherd's rifle with no sights on it. So I'm reading this. Again, eyewitness testimony. One of the British agents called it the most dramatic thing he'd ever seen in warfare. So my question was, was this guy an unbelievable like savant, or did he just know something that the rest of us have forgotten? And it brought me this whole idea of instinctive aim. The idea is we have these abilities inside, but we forget the skills, we forget the techniques, and all we want to do is muscle through everything. 
And the thing about it, though, is you can very quickly, quickly turn yourself into a very efficient, accurate thrower if you break down the motion into individual movements and you learn the skill. But most of us just want to blow right past the skill and get on to the 600 pounds on the squat bench and 500 on, on bench press. They don't want to actually take the time to learn a good, clean, smooth groove, you know, the proper technique. And to me, again, it's one of the things that's both discouraging and encouraging about sports today. I think that uh, as far as training is concerned, some of the things we're seeing, even, even in CrossFit, one of the things we're really seeing is a focus on proper technique, not maximum numbers. But the discouraging thing is for most of the population, that's all they want. They want to run the fastest 5K they possibly can. They want to throw as many 45s on the bar as they possibly can. And they just want to forget that all this is really based on skill that has to be refined. So, Chris, this leads me to my questions I had for you, that athletes are rarely taught how to run, how to jump, how to do any of these things. And then the best athletes, those that pick it up, are just picked out naturally and given more opportunities. So I'm curious if you notice something in, in the tribes, or how did they teach them how to run? And now you're working with a lot of parkour coaches. How are they teaching you to just do all this crazy stuff off walls? Yeah, that's a great question, Tex. So that was one, that's one of the first things I noticed when I was down the Copper Canyons was, you know, I, I'd been to races here in the U.S. and you watch 20,000 runners and you see 20,000 different ways of running. Then I get down to the Copper Canyon. I'm seeing kids, old people, men and women alike, and they're all running exactly the same way. Like the technique and the stride is identical person to person. That's the first time it clicked that, you know, maybe there is actually a right and a wrong way to run. And now I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. And it just makes perfect scientific sense that if you're doing a physiological movement, there's a better and a worse way. The reason why indigenous tribes have learned this basically is because they don't have a lot of the gunk interference. You know, they're not running on treadmills. They're not running in cushion shoes. They're running on hard natural surfaces, which teaches you to be efficient and light on your feet. Secondly, they're surrounded by mentors all the time. They have generations of people who've all mastered this technique. So when they go out to run, it's not them themselves alone in the dark at five in the morning. It's them in a group of people who all know how to do it. So you learn by mimicry. Uh, parkour is a very interesting thing too, because I believe there's nothing a parkour teacher can teach you that your ancestors probably already didn't know naturally. But the problem is that was two generations ago. Um, and it's amazing to me when you go to a parkour class and you see someone do a vault, it just seems impossible. And they show you how to place your hands, how to raise your hips. And within five minutes, you're doing this vault cleanly that you thought was impossible before. And it really teaches me this by learning those efficient movements, you can master shit that you never thought was possible. So this leads into my next question with uh, the resistance fighters and the natural born heroes. Did they default to instinctual best practice movements or do you think they were just great movers that then were presented an opportunity? Um, luckily, most, the most um, effective resistance was in Greece. Greece is the only place in the world where the resistance began on day one. Every other country sort of backed off after the Germans arrived and waited a few months before they put together resistance. The Greeks were out there like grabbing swords off the shelf and racing into the streets while the Germans were still coming down parachutes. So they started day one. And that's where um, the British sent most of their operatives to join the resistance was on Greece. Well, what's cool about Greece was they're, they're an island nation that has basically been at war forever, you know, fighting against the Venetians and the Turks and everybody. So they maintain those ancient traditions. So I think that the, um, there's, there's a Greek fighting art called Pancratium. And the only ones who really liked Pancratium was the Spartans. Everyone else thought it was just too brutal. 
But Pancrasian is believed to be the genesis of all the martial arts. It was the original fighting art. It's no rules, all you know, hand-to-hand combat. That still existed on Greece at the time the Germans invaded. So what I think happened was these resistance fighters who were not Greek were learning from these Greek shepherds and smugglers and, um, and um, you know, outlaws who were still living the same traditional life up in the mountains. So with, uh, with all this kind of necessity and just kind of, I guess it's really just wired where we have these wired abilities, uh, you know, and when you going back to just be useful and kind of that, that statement, I, I see that as a kind of a bridging definition to athleticism. And that's why we, we are always more wed to athleticism over fitness per se, because we've seen really, really fit individuals who can do lots of amazing things in the gym who can't who aren't useful through space, like you said, in every direction. Well, I, I, I think what it goes back to is, I mean, you even take a look at um, something like a CrossFit deal. Well, I guess um, you, you know, before like, we jump in, well, I was just curious if maybe Chris could share uh, with that in mind, what, how would you define athleticism? I mean, in your previous athletic life and then meeting all of these individuals who are, are useful in their own right, how, how, if you could apply a definition of athleticism, Chris, I'm curious what it would be. You know, it's a good question because you, you make me do some soul searching right now. Like right now, I consider myself pretty fit, but I'm giving myself a CC minus in terms of athleticism. And the mm-hmm. reason why is because I tend to groove to the shit that I like to do and avoid the stuff that I don't like to do. So um, when was the last time I sat in a deep squat for 10 or 15 minutes? It's been a while, you know. Uh, when was the last time I carried feedbacks on my shoulder? It's been a while. I like to play pickup ball. I like to run. So my fitness is good. My diet's good. My all-around athleticism, I've been slacking off. Uh, again, my definition is basically that, is can you perform in every imaginable, imaginable circumstances to the best of your ability? Mm-hmm. And I got to admit right now, I can't. There are things that I, I shouldn't be doing that I can't do. Um, you know, I'd be curious to hear your, your guys' feelings about CrossFit. Uh, I'm actually, you know, a big fan of CrossFit, except for the moment when it became a competition. Like the second the CrossFit Games began, I thought, oh, I feel like you guys are on the road, the road to ruin because suddenly it's me against well, guys. Let me, uh, let me take it back and say um, I really wrestled with this deal of athleticism and we didn't really find very many definitions. And so we basically went back and defined uh, based on the power athlete, my own you know deal and input or input for many drinking adventures with these guys. <laughs> we bar napkins. Yeah, bar napkins about what is athleticism. And I actually have it on the wall here, and I'll read it to you. The ability to seamlessly and effortlessly combine primal movement patterns through space to accomplish a known or novel task. And uh, primal movement patterns is um, really the, the pillar and the basic of this power athlete model, where the lower body can only do three things. If you look at it in terms of an X, Y, and Z axis, you can hip hinge, which is a squat. You can lunge, and you can step. And if you look at all movement in the lower body, that's all it is. It's just three movement patterns used in different variations. You, you know, think about a linebacker or, you know, uh, in football, just to use a reference, you know, linebacker sits in kind of a, you know, hip, uh, universal athletic position, the ball snap, he takes a step, somebody comes at him, he hurdles him, he changes direction. That's basically the, our definition of athleticism. But more importantly, like seamlessly and effortlessly, you watch people do things that are both effortless and they make it look so simple and how they tie things together. And, you know, we know it like uh, athleticism is hard to define because 
you know it when you see it. You watch somebody run or they take a step and they jump off a rock and they land in a good position. You're like, oh, wow, that was really good, opposed to the other guy that breaks his leg. And you're like, well, like I wasn't at work. So where we really wrestled with it was we watched people that were extremely fit in terms of, let's say, a CrossFit setting or even like somebody that runs a marathon. But all of a sudden you put uh, an obstacle in the way. Like, for example, they're running and there's a, uh, a pothole. They step in the pothole and they're fucking out of the race. And you're like, well, dude, you saw that thing coming from, you know, 50 yards away. Evasive maneuver. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, like, and, you know, and, and the, the CrossFit in terms of, you know, CrossFit defines uh, fitness as increased work capacity. Yeah. You know, your ability to do the same thing or different things and do it more. And, you know, it's that kind of increased work capacity. But for us, um, there wasn't a correlation between increased fitness and increased athleticism. You know, just, there could be. Well, there could be, but we weren't seeing it because the training has to be athletic. And to define something as, as athletic, you have to move your feet. You can't just stand with your feet here and thrust her up and down. And if all the movements that you're doing can be done in a doorway, mm-hmm. you know, you think about a squat, a swim, I mean, everything can be done within the confines of a doorway. Well, athleticism, athleticism, and uh, being athletic is anything but in a doorway, the ability to move through space, different directions and change and run and jump and do a, do a lot of other things. So let me be, a, let me be a CrossFit apologist in here for one second, because um, basically if you had to ask me like, what are the ultimate sports, ultimate Frisbee and parkour, these are the, the two sports where you're actually doing full range of motion, endurance. The problem with it is, is that you're putting people into an urban workday environment. And if I want to go out and do parkour for two hours, it's going to be pretty hard to fit into my work day. If I want to play ultimate frisbee, it's probably not going to happen that often. Sure. That's why, you know, I've got my problems with CrossFit, but I feel that they have at least addressed the realistic problem. Oh, yeah. They've made, no, it's, they've uh, made exercise we're, so accessible. We're not yeah, into CrossFit. Yeah. I, I work with CrossFit and teach one of their specialty seminars. Um, so, and I actually competed in the CrossFit Games. Oh, uh, here we go. The, uh, Glory days. One of the, lar- uh, the largest athletes ever compete in the CrossFit <laughs> Games. I was over 300 pounds, 312 at the time. Uh, but the idea that, uh, you know, fitness, uh, while, you know, increases in terms of, you know, health and longevity, and you look at fitness in this way, um, fit, you know, and I go back to different people I worked with and played with and had different athletes. Uh, some of the most athletic guys weren't necessarily the most fit guys. They were guys that probably couldn't run a mile, but yet, uh, you know, you give them a golf club, a basketball, really anything and their ability to, you know, use their body to, you know, solve problems. Yeah. Solve problems. And there's another deal I have. It's called athletic problem solving, which is something that we, you know, like for my kids, like that's something I work on with my kids. Like I put them in certain places, like, Hey, I'm going to stick you up here on the bar and I need you to get off the bar. Or when they get in the car, I have a, a truck and my daughters know that I will never help them get in the truck. I open the door and they have to play Spider-Man and try to like figure out how to get into the truck. Yeah, and, yeah. So, and it's this idea of athletic problem solving, which people don't have anymore because everything's so accessible. It's not like we're standing at the bottom of a mountain and you're looking up and being like, well, how do I get to the top of this mountain? That's, that's the novel task part of the definition. Yeah. It's your ability to use your body to solve a problem, something you've never done before. Yeah. And so that's what we've, you know, really kind of taken is like, you know, by looking at these different primal movement patterns, and there's really four for the upper body too. You can push, you can pull, you can push and pull and do other things out here on the periphery that are combinations of those, but really breaking this thing down into seven primal movement patterns and then being able to teach the movement pattern, how it should be done, 
and then stress the movement pattern through either external resistance, volume, intensity, speed, I mean, all these other different key factors. And then being able to test and repeat and then offer different ways. And then once somebody masters it, be able to increase upon it. And it's really, um, uh, you know, in terms of building athletes, I think it works very well. But, you know, it's all about where you start and where you finish. And, mm-hmm. you know, case in point, uh, my little girls are in spring break. So for spring break, uh, you know, I enroll them. They, they go to gymnastics a couple of days a week, but there was a gymnastics camp. Uh, so I take them there in the morning and um, big part of the thing is I got to get them early so that I get to go jump on all the implements and play with them. So I, uh, it starts at nine and I get there at like eight, eight forty-five, and like nobody's in there yet. Like none of the other parents and most of the parents just come and drop the kids off and I like see it. I'm like, great. So we like race down the, uh, the runways where the vault and then jump into the pits. I get them to swing on some things and we play on everything for like 15 minutes. And then while they're in the vault or in the foam pit, I basically bolt out or they want me to stay. But like, you know, that ability to have them do like, you know, to use their body. And like, I'm such a, a, a fan of like what they do in gymnastics, just because they're, their their ability to use their body through space. And it's teaching them something at a young age that like, I, I know that I physically cannot teach that the way that these people are teaching it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, you know, but and it's hard to do as an adult well, I mean, yeah, because I mean, well, that's, it, that's, that's so going back to kind of the CrossFit model and just that you have 2000 square feet and you have 15 people and you need to get them yeah. sweaty. They can only move in their own little radius and right. it's better than app. It is yeah, better than every option out there. Without yeah, a doubt. It's, it's, it's better than like going and doing your Zumba class, your bar a, or, uh, uh, you know, being stuck on a fucking elliptical or mm-hmm. some other guy. I mean, a year ago, we actually, we uh, in this office back here, it's a big gym that is our personal gym and our personal training center uh, that's not open to the members. It's only for it's my stuff. And uh, But we actually <laughs> went and joined a commercial gym just because I felt like we had gotten away from some of the... We're taking for granted what we yeah, have. Right? Exactly. <laughs> right? So we actually joined a commercial gym and we used to train there. And what people were doing in the life they were leading. Like I want to like put like a blanket around them and like fucking throw them in the truck and be like, I'm going to save you because you cannot save yourself. What you think you're doing, you're not fucking like, you're so far, you're like so far off of center where you need to be that like, we need an intervention that involves a kidnapping and taking <laughs> And like, you know, and it was, it, it was really interesting. And like, um, and dude, uh, the joke that I, I, I made on it was um, you, you're familiar with the show Naked and Afraid. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Like my wife and I love yeah. it. We laugh, 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 but like, that's what we want to do. We want to like take those people that are on there, you know, on the elliptical that are at the gym, you know, eating the pre-packaged yeah. food and then just like kidnapping them and dumping them off for, can you survive for 21 days without your clothes in a hostile environment? I love it. It's a new concept. Fitness by gunpoint. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, but hey, let me, let me tell you something, John. You guys got to check out Natural Born Heroes then because you know what Teddy Roosevelt used to do when he was in the White House? He used to go out at dusk as the sun's going down and he and some of his buddies would look around and they'd pick a spot and they'd go, okay, there, somewhere like 15 miles in the distance. And they would do a straight line from the White House to that point. If it meant climbing down gorges, swimming the Potomac, crawling through brush, whatever it was, he would go all night doing these bizarre, like parkour cross country expeditions. And then he'd have a couple of army soldiers pick him up with fresh horses at daybreak. He'd ride his horses back to the White House, get cleaned up, and then start the day's work. But he always did it at night so people wouldn't see him. Yeah. Before, well, t- I mean, t- Teddy Roosevelt, in terms of being like a warfighter, a shooter, or, you know, a writer, I mean, he was really the, dem- the, the definition of it. And, you know, and you even look at a lot of those guys looked at being politicians as a civil responsibility to lead. 
not to fucking pad your pockets and go hide in Washington and, you know, merely be yeah. agenda. But we'll get into yeah. stuff later. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that really is, is, is kind of the model for these things. I mean, that idea of, um, you know, are you willing to, you know, get outside your comfort zone and like, you know, can, you know, can you do these things? You, know, you never know how strong you are until you have to be. I mean, here's a situation where these guys are like, let's go, let's do it. And like, I mean, that's something even we get stuck into. Luke and I had, it's so ironic we're having this conversation. Yesterday. We literally, was it two days ago, we were like, I yeah. cannot, like, like we, because um, I have kids and we work and we do all this other stuff, like, are we trained in the mornings? And I'm like, I cannot keep coming to a fucking gym. Like, we either have to go to the beach and swim in cold water or like throw rocks at each other. Field like, trips. Like field trips. We have to go out and get out of this stuff because um, me showing up at six in the morning uh, to just lift weights and, uh, you know, today we pushed the, you know, I pushed the prowler all day. I mean, all I did this morning, but, uh, just that, like, I need to go outside and I need to like be useful. Yeah. Do test some, your usefulness. Yeah, like that, your I, usefulness. I like that, that term because, uh, you know, like, and, but the problem is, is that our definition of fit is really become a physical, uh, how like, do I look? Do well, I yeah, look yeah, fit? yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's fitness is no longer about like, dude, you just went and ran 50 miles or you did this or this. It's how do I look? Does that person look fit? So now there's this like physical, visual association with fitness where like, you know, well, I, yeah, I want to be fit. Well, you're like, well, you know, and we ask people all the time, well, define fit to me. And it's like, well, I, I want to look fit. I'm like, well, do you want to look fit? It's like, do you want to be strong or do you want to look strong? Fitness is an aesthetic, not an ability. Yeah. I mean, and, and I meet people all the time like, well, I don't really care about being strong. I just want to look like a strong motherfucker. And I'm like, <laughs> well, do you think that these big strong dudes over here, the guys you're pointing to, uh, look that way because, like, uh, on anything but accident? Like, like, pe- like yeah. form follows function. Like, yeah. it, it, you know, if you're strong, you look strong because that's how you, you know. And so it's, um, and, and I, dude, I, I go back to the social media thing. I really got to believe. It's because everything's become so visual, but also we're in this yeah. iPhone generation where everything is now, everything is immediate. Like I, you know, like I just click a button and it happens. I, I, I want to order food. I, I hit it. I, yeah. I hate it. There's, there, there's no suffering. Like, um, uh, big thing I do is I hunt and, you know, try to you know, bring something and put it in, in the freezer and that's what we eat. And, you know, like, uh, I just shot an elk and it got delivered and, uh, my kids are, we were eating elk burgers last night. And they're going to eat elk for like the next like four weeks. And my daughter's like, oh, this is the best. And, uh, you know, and then like I talked, like they're like, uh, you know, they saw the pictures and I showed them like this is the elk. And they were like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is the, the elk that daddy shot. And this is what we're going to eat. And so they associate like not just meat under cellophane, but here's this bitch and animal that, you know, I was lucky enough and, um, you know, was nice enough to, to give up to my family. But, I mean, that's part of of that fitness, that ability to be able to go out and do some things. I mean, that was something Luke's like, what what could you, what would you want to train for of anything? And I said, dude, uh, I would love, like my goal is to be able to go harvest a big Roosevelt elk, which are like 1200 pounds. I want to like hike out for three days, get it. I want to quarter it. And I want to drag it out. Like, you know, like drag it out, bear bag it, drag it out and like bring that whole thing out, quarter it, bring it, you know, process it, do everything and put that in the freezer. And to me, like that would be uh, uh, something to train for getting up and, and standing up in front of a bunch of other weird people in a set of uh, bikini underwear, you know, posing, you know, like this, like that doesn't, like there's nothing part of that that doesn't uh, appeal to me. And so, you know, yeah. So I'm off my tangent. Sorry about that. No, it's cool. But again, the, the, 
I agree with you. I mean, I, we, we heat our house with firewood. So every year I'm hauling in four cords of wood. And I use a lumberjack saw, do it all by hand, split it, stack it. It's a point where every time we put a log in that fire, I know exactly where the fuck it came from. Like I remember that piece of wood. And now if it's cold and my wife wants a fire, I'm like, I don't know, you know, it's, it's only 50 degrees in the house. It's not that cold. <laughs> yeah, go put a sweater on. Yeah, put a sweater on. But the problem is, though, though, how do we realistically translate that into most people's everyday life? You know, you have the opportunity to go hunt elk. Not many people get that opportunity. But the workout you're going to get is fantastic. You can be up at 3 o'clock in the morning. You're walking through shit. You're standing up. It's, it's a grueling proposition that not a lot of people can do. So that's where I really feel like the big challenge for us is, number one, how do you raise that sense of wanting the desire, you know? Put that, that sense of compassion and fire back in people's belly. And then number two, how do you give them the practical reality? So now they want to do it, and where are they going to do it? And that, that's where I really feel like we're up against the challenge. Again, that's why I feel like I'm, I'm defending CrossFit because, again, I, I, I'm aware of the sins as well. On the other hand, I'm kind of looking around like, who's got a better plan? You know? Oh, better, yeah. You wrote about in Born to Run about the community aspect that, you know, there's this idea of, you know, um, you know why didn't the same – uh, physiological, uh, mental, emotional problems uh, that are affecting us and, you know, the different afflictions, why aren't they or were affecting the, uh, uh, you know, the Indians who work with the Copper Canyon? And, you you know, and the, the idea was that, you know, here's a situation where, uh, you know, the elders, the children, like everybody was working in a kind of cohesive unit. I mean, there's right. a great book called Tribes. And the one thing that uh, CrossFit has done better than any other fitness group on the planet is this idea of creating community based on these central locations, you know, gyms, boxes where, you know, and, and I, I owned across the gym for a number of years, the idea that people come to the gym, you like bring them into your family, you educate them, you know, there's shared suffering through, you know, the workouts, which, you know, bonds people with the same reason football players go to training camp and soldiers go to uh, basic training. Um, you put them in this and if you don't show up, you got five people being like, where the fuck were you at workout? Right. You know? right. And so, that idea of community, which is CrossFit has done, uh, is by far, you know, I mean, you can talk about the fitness or anything else, but I, I think really their single greatest contribution of CrossFit is the ability or what they've done to basically build community. Yeah, that word tribe sums it all. Are you guys familiar with the uh, November Project? Mm, I'm not. Yeah, not enough off the top of my head. Check this out. This is an interesting thing. Uh, Break a couple, couple dudes, ex-rowers up in Boston, uh, were getting fat and out of shape. And so they decide, okay, November 1st, we're going to get together. We're going to start the workout the way we used to when we were in college. So they invite a couple of buddies along. And they called it the November Project only because they were starting November 1st. So they met at um, Harvard Stadium and decided, okay, we're going to run a tour of stadium steps. And they started inviting people along. But basically what November Project has created, there's about I think 17 different tribes across the country now. It's free. Anybody wants to show up. It's communal. And the first person is not done until the last person is done. So the first person, if you've done first, you turn right the fuck around, you go back to the end, and you help the last person in. But it's basically talking about the same thing. And they have a thing called the verbal, which if you say you're going to be there, you better be there. One of the things they did, too, was when Boston got hit by that blizzard a couple of winters ago, rather than work out, they just got a bunch of snow shovels and went to the subways and just started digging out the subway stations. You know, it's like, be fit to be useful. Do something wow. that's worthwhile. I like goosebumps. Well, uh, you know, where you live in Pennsylvania, you're obviously familiar. I mean, I grew up in California and went to Berkeley. And then when I moved out to Philly, uh, first time really living in the snow, uh, all of a sudden we got a massive snow at my house and I went out with a shovel and I'm basically out there in a pair of jeans and it's like, you know, negative 10 degrees and snowing. 
And uh, 10 minutes, I got no shirt on. I literally shoveled my entire driveway. And it took me better part of like an hour and a half, two hours. And like, I felt like I'd accomplished all of it. And then all of a sudden, you know, the 15 year old kid up the, up the way comes driving down on his four wheeler with a snow uh, plow on the front. I'd be like, I would have done this for like 10 bucks. I can't believe you've been out here. We've been out here watching you. And we didn't think <laughs> we just figured when you stopped, you would, you know, we'd hit us up. We're like, I can't believe you did it. And I'm like, that was a good experience. All right. Next time, 10 bucks. If you see it, the, the minute it drops down and those kids were money on that. But, uh, that yeah. was, I talked to people about that experience. I'm like, you know, for most people, this have never had to shovel snow. I'm like, dude, great workout. Go do it. Oh yeah. That's why most guys in their fifties, like the, the heart attack rate for dudes in their fifties, shoveling snow is sky high just for that reason. They, they do nothing. And suddenly they're out there trying to pose a challenge. So, I don't know, I mean, that's the thing about it, too. I love the fact that this November project is grassroots. It's everybody can come, and it's all for one, one for all. You know, which, again, you don't really see in the gyms. Everyone's sort of plugged in, staring at their monitors, and they're not actually paying attention to the people around them. That's, I mean, that's really what our biggest criticism was when we went to the commercial gym, was uh, there was no community. Nobody talked to each other. There, yeah. Everybody was kind of all doing their own deal, and people were honestly in this, like, earphone I don't want to be bothered. Don't slow me down. Whereas you go into a CrossFit gym, it's like, you know, we used to punish people. They didn't introduce themselves. If somebody's new is there and you don't walk over and introduce yourself, you're like, dude, we're going to punish you. So there was a uh, ability to like bring people in, indoctrinate and bring them in, talk to them about their lives. want to know everybody about you. And, you know, people, you know, call CrossFit like a cult. I'm like, I don't necessarily know if it's that in a way, but it's more this idea where if somebody approaches you and actually is interested in you as an individual and helping you reach your goals or helping you be a better version, it's a cult now. And yeah. I'm like, like, that's how anything, fucked up we are. Anything new and popular is always a cult. They said that about barefoot runners too. It's a cult. You know, it's, just, it's just new and popular. That's all it is. I also find it interesting in commercial gyms and now any long Metcon, people just clock on, mind off. So they don't have to solve a problem under duress. And that's what I really miss about sports is – Heart rate's jacked. You're running as hard as you can, a thousand miles an hour, but you still got a job to do. What oh, was that? Just a was that a question or was that just a statement? Just an observation and oh. me just thinking back to. You, are, you pon- are you pontificating? Game days. <laughs> How long have you been waiting to say that statement? Like an hour? Yeah, John, you finally took a breath. I jumped in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a talker. I'm not a talker. <laughs> Ah, uh, dude, that's uh. So, um, do Chris, uh, like, okay, so, so you write? Do you, do you go out and speak? Like, yeah. like, uh, are you a motivational speaker? Like, do people bring you in? And you know, uh, I, I don't know, uh, the corporate events or like, so what do you do? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm I'm a writer by training profession. You know, I was a journalist for I don't know, a good twenty some years before I wrote Born to Run. Um, and after that, I just threw myself into the next project, which is Natural Born Heroes. And now I'm working on the third one which is kind of a bizarre project, but it actually makes a lot of sense, I think. Uh, we'll see what the publisher thinks of it. But they do these races in Colorado called burrow races, donkey races, where it's an old miners tradition where you ran next to your donkey for like 15, 20 miles at a time. So I'm actually training with my wife, who you might just saw sashay through the back of the screen a couple seconds ago. We've got a couple donkeys, and we go out and run with these donkeys. Uh, and we're going to be participating in some of these races up in Colorado mountains this summer. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, it sounds awesome. Uh, babe, we got to get a donkey. We got to race this summer. Well, <laughs> and I know what people are going to say. Well, I can't do it. I don't have a donkey. Yeah. Well, here's the thing about though, but most people have a dog or they got a cat. You watch like, you ever watch the dog whisperer, that guy, yeah. Cesar Milan, this guy's built an empire on the fact that people don't know how to walk their fucking dogs. <laughs> 
everybody's got a dog that's like barking and chewing the furniture and they're like i don't know what to do and his answer is always the same thing exercise walk the dog yeah he does the same thing you have some snarling pit bull he'll just put it on a leash take it for a walk dog's fine that's so, well that's all isn't Please. that really isn't it the metaphor for for all human i mean for all mammals really for people like oh, yeah. like i i remember uh my wife and I had twins the first time out of the gate. And uh, so like my, my wife breastfed them. So really it was like every three hours. So I didn't really sleep more than like 45 minutes at any one point for like three months. And yeah. uh, I remember like I got to the point where like I was kind of feisty. And my wife's like, you just need to go to the gym and go do something. Like just get the fuck out of the house. Like go to do something. And I like went out and I can't remember what I did. I got on a rower and I think I like, uh, I definitely damaged my inner child. I fucking tried to kill myself on that row and I went home and I was like, I'm way better. To Cleansed. Be dad. Yeah. Way better to be That's a dad now. Literally yeah. what happened this morning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it just, it, you, you get to the point where you're like, I just need to like go out and fucking hurt myself a little bit just to try to like cleanse it. And you talk about sweating, but like for me personally, like, uh, the job that I did, I really just enjoyed the violent factor of it. Like people were like, Oh, I played for this and you know, played for God. I'm like, there was no God. There was no glory. I just wanted to hurt a motherfucker. And more importantly, I like the, the constant fight. So then all of a sudden you retire and you're like, now what do I do? I guess I get to just hurt me all the time. So it's good. <laughs> so like, you just like throw a tennis ball for John every morning to have him chase it for a couple yeah, hours? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, but it's true. I mean, like, you know, just, yeah, the, the Caesar Blunt thing's a great deal. I mean, my, my wife loves it and I actually have two pit bulls. And if they don't get walked or we don't go out and play with them, they just look for trouble to get into. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about it. So, yeah, they are, they are animals that are brimming with energy. They're, they're looking for a job. They're looking for a purpose. And we, same as humans, like the zoo humans. Erwan uh, uh, LaCour talked yeah. about zoo humans. Sure. We've taken the panda, we've put it into captivity, and you wonder why it's not eating and why it's not reproducing. <laughs> so, animals, you know, these animals want a job, and we, we put them in a house all day, and you wonder why they're bored and hyperactive. So, what I want to do with this book is actually look at animal human partnerships and yeah. re examine what we've lost because. Yeah, for most of human existence, we always uh, cohabitated and worked together with animals. And suddenly, like in the last hundred years, we suddenly stopped. And I mean, what exactly, not only what have the animals lost, but what have we lost by that, that loss of understanding and patience that used to come from trying to train a dog or a horse to do um, a job along with us? Yeah, the, uh, the, so the, I do, uh, I, I go squirrel hunting for, do some varmint hunting up in Northern California. And the guy who puts us up, I'm calling Papa Joe, uh, he's a vet. And uh, he's got a beautiful acreage out there and uh, works with horses. And his pets are like the most well-trained pets. And like, this guy's like a, a proper mountain man, like uh, great guy. But it's funny talking to people that I, I, I never grew up around horses, but one of my buddies now wives, they raised horses and animals and also friends with his Papa Joe. And just seeing the interaction of a human and a horse is something I never knew. Like I never like, knew there was that that much of like a spiritual like, connection there. They're like big dogs. Yeah, uh, and it's uh, they're actually yeah. I mean, they, they remind me uh, whenever I've been around horses, they're always like big dogs to me. And uh, they're like and just yeah. just a relationship with man and dog has always fascinated me as well. And and the, uh, Chris, honestly, you know, I'm I'm not a well read individual. I'm like a, a Cliff Notes audio book type of guy. And I, I one of my best friends is big in the literature, and we were just talking about Born to Run. Is he's He's assigned me homework to read the book two weeks ago when I was visiting him in Sri Lanka. And uh, he was talking about how you, you do. No, seriously, he, he went to Sri Lanka for the weekend. <laughs> but he, when we got on the topic because I was, we were talking about the relationship between the canine or dogs and, and man. And he said that you kind of touched on that in, in that book. 
about yeah. how it was just at, were the two types of animals that, like you said, with, with, with Warm Run, you can cover, we're really efficient at covering ground and, and dogs could keep up. So that's how the relationship was essentially formed. I'm probably oversimplifying it, but I'll let you go. Yeah, no, it's basically on the money. And then, you know, the fact is we keep trying to think of ourselves as not being animals, but the fact is, you know, we are animals just like dogs. And the things we see in their behavior that we don't like is the same thing in our own behavior, you know? So in some ways they're a great mirror image of what's going wrong in modern life. If you want to know why dogs are misbehaving, why they're hard to, uh, to uh, handle, why they're hyperactive and depressed and melancholy and have uh, eating problems, it's the same reason we're wrestling with the same questions because we're just as physical animals as they are. Well, um, I'll tell you this. Uh, my, I've, I've had a series of pit bulls over the years, and like I first got my first one bear in, in, uh, in Philadelphia uh, from a breeder down in Maryland, and uh, my dogs never liked to eat. Like I had to like, I'd put out food and they would like pick at it and they never ate. And uh, it was pretty frustrating to, to me. And so I got to the point where I just started trying different things. And I realized it wasn't that they didn't want to eat. They just didn't want to eat that food because the mixture that I have now, like I'm like, they will literally, as soon as they see, they know it's dinner time. Like they will sit by their bowls and like, I make it as I go put it down, I like sit it down and they watch it and I make them wait. And I'm like, go, and I'm not kidding you. They eat that food mm-hmm. like faster than Luke's. Luke's probably the most impressive eater. Thank, I've ever you. Been around. Thank you. Thank like, you. Like no kidding. And they eat faster than that. And like, it was pretty amazing because when I met my wife, she's like, how come your dogs don't like to eat? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe they're just not hungry. And then as soon as we changed the food to a more, you know, I guess you could say like primal diet where it was uh, actual real food and not like kibble and different things, crushed it. Same thing with kids. Yeah. I mean, like our, our little girls and my, my son too, when, when he's a little bit older, uh, have eaten you know like their first meal was liver and like you know uh, egg yolks i mean dude i i went so far down off of the reservation in terms of if i could plan the perfect human diet for my kids and lie to them about what you know like this is what you you know this and so the best is uh i go to i go pick them up from school and they like sit down with their snack and like you know there's their uh like meat potato and like, you know, uh, fruit and this thing. And I'm like looking at these and the other kids are over there eating like pizza and like uh, cheese puffs. And I'm like, I, I was like blown away. I went and sat down. I'm like, Jamie Kelly, show me your lunches. And like, I'm looking at their lunches and like the teachers are like, we would totally eat their lunches. <laughs> and these other kids are eating it. And I'm like, my dogs didn't want to eat that food. My kids don't want to eat that food. And yet that's the food that parents give their kids. And like, I I look at it like if I wouldn't want to eat it or I wouldn't feel comfortable feeding it to my, like, why am I going to feed it to kids? And then we wonder why you have behavior problems and and it just becomes cascading. I mean, it's, and uh, our, one and I are actually good friends and uh, actually ironically wrote a recommendation for him to get citizenship, which is so funny. But um, he talked about that too. He's like, uh, he goes, you know, we're animals. And he goes, you know, if you, if, if you have an animal in the house and he's not happy, it's because you're doing something or you're not happy. So it gives sense. Yeah. So I think we're coming up on 90 minutes. Yeah. Chris, I mean, is that, I mean, where I think you just throw open the Google and you, you search for the books and you'll find them, right? Or do you have a specific place you want these people to check out these books? What's up? No, man. Beg, borrow, or steal. Uh, grab them any way you can. Um, but also for you, you Luke, uh, for, for Natural Born Heroes, grab the audio book. The guy does a super job of reading and, you know, it goes down a little bit painlessly for you. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you guys will find a lot of connections uh, with, with the kind of work you're doing, particularly with paleo diet, primal movement, and uh, natural movement. That's great, man. What a great podcast. Yeah. Chris, I, I, I'm uh, so yeah. stoked. Man. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really 
awesome to meet your connection. And, uh, you know, if we're in the Philly area anytime, uh, we'd love to hit you up and maybe take you out for a drink or something to eat. And uh, I'd love to connect again. And um, you guys want to do some field work, man. I got 40 bales of hay outside. You need to put uh, we're going to Philly in October. Yeah, don't, yeah, don't, don't tempt us. We'll show up. The weekend after the girl's birthday. Yeah. It's me and you, big guy. Um, I'm in. The, um, I, last time I went elk hunting, uh, we went hunting on this pretty big property. And uh, the part of the, the, the guy that owns, he owns about 14,000 acres here in Central California. And he purchased the land in different pieces. And one of the bigger pieces he purchased was from an old couple um, who had, I think the husband had inherited the land. And he, he started working when he was 19, met his wife when she was like 16. And she was a local girl. They had basically lived on this land in Central California. And she had never been to San Francisco, never been off it. And then her mm-hmm. husband passed away and she sells the land. She was in her 90s. And uh, the whole deal was, I'll sell you this land, but uh, I basically want to live out the rest of my life in this deal. So when we went hunting, um, the owner Lamb was like, hey, uh, uh, we got to go and do some stuff for, you know, I can't remember her name. And so we go over and uh, meet the old lady. And uh, she's like, you know, I, I, I keep a fire. So she's like, I need to you know, get some wood. And you, know, you guys are okay with that? And I'm like, I used to stack wood as a kid. So literally we stacked this lady. I mean, it had to be 50 piles I mean, just like lean to after lean to out there cutting. I mean, it was a, you know, a good six hour day. And so the guy's like, yeah, and I'm like, dude, any type of manual labor I get to do. It's my game. I mean, yeah, we used to, when we were kids, we'd come home and there'd be a big, uh, uh, the guy would come dump all the, all the, the cut wood in our driveway. And yeah. it, we'd come home walking to school and we'd see it. And we knew that if it wasn't stacked before dark and my dad got home, we were going to be in trouble. Yeah. So I'm in, you're like, oh, fuck, the firewood's here. And then we'd have to stack it. So. It was like going back to as a kid. I'm like, man, this is, brings me back good days. So, Dude, think, of, think of me as an old California lady. Come out of here. That'd <laughs> <laughs> my 50 piles. I love it. Yeah. Wow, I'm in. It'd be great to run into you guys. Anytime you're in the area, if I'm out in California, let's, let's stay in touch. Yeah, we're, we're in Orange County. Please reach out. We'd love to uh, connect again. And, um, dude, well, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, thanks, I'm, Chris. I'm, I'm very humble. Thanks, 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 Luke. Thanks, John. Yes, sir. Hey, thank take you. Care. Oh, thanks. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. It's time to break a mental sweat, people. Head to www.chrismcdougall.com. Get more information about his research, philosophy, and to get your copy of not only Born to Run, but Chris's latest book, Natural Born Heroes. Again, a special thank you to Chris McDougall for joining us on the show. He is kind of a big deal, and we were humbled to have him. Until next time, bye! Bye!